Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day again as we are continuing. Actually, we're going to finish off this series called Pathways. We started at Easter and we've been examining this question, do all religions lead to heaven? And I think it's a, an interesting question, especially as we look at the religion today that is called secular humanism. Now, you may not have ever really, like, in word, na- run into secular humanism. So I, I realized my first time ever running into it was, was uh, interesting. It was in first grade. And you're thinking, what? You have a weird teacher? No, actually, I was in line over at Vicentia Elementary School, because that's where I went. And my best friend was standing in front of me. And we were headed into Miss Squire's class after recess. And I was probably being snarky or poking at him. I don't even know what, 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 what happened. But he turned around to me, and he basically said, well... There is no God. And I'm thinking, what? How's a first grader get to there is no God? Like my little first grade mind is like spinning. Like, what do you mean there's no God? Uh And and I looked at him. I I remember what I said very clearly. I looked at him and said, you can't say that. You'll go to hell. (laughs) I guess I was going to be a preacher and didn't even know it. So you're all going to hell. No, that's not what a preacher does. But anyway. The point was interesting that here was this young man that, who later as we grew up, I would come to follow Jesus Christ as a 17-year-old. And he would choose the path of atheism. And as we sat down together after I had come to Christ, man, he peppered me with every question you could imagine. How do you know God exists? How do you know your faith is real? What about Noah and the ark? And how do the penguins get there? And I mean, you had everything you could imagine as we went through these discussions together. And over the years, I've had to learn and grow in this conversation about what I would later find out is called secular Humanism. It's a viewpoint that, it, that is very, very common out there. So common, in fact, that almost all of us at one level or another it deals with it on a routine basis. In fact, I would say many of us in the room hold to a lot of their beliefs with just a Christian veneer slapped over the top of it. In fact, the vast majority of Americans would hold to this viewpoint and then just add God on, which, which causes um, kind of the issue for most of the secular humanists. In fact, their def- their, some of their thinking and some of their thoughts are actually repeated in Christian circles today. Thoughts like, I am enough. And maybe you've heard that where somebody says, well, I'm enough. I, I can handle, I've got this. You know, I'm beautiful enough. I'm strong enough. Uh, I'm smart enough. And people like me, you know, that kind of a thing. As you think about the I'm enough statement, then there's the idea of as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, go ahead and do it. Anybody heard that one before or used that one before? This is a secularist humanist concept. And, or the YOLO, you only live once. You've only got this one opportunity. You live once, take as much as you can and go for it. These are secular humanist concepts, and these are born to us and used. And I've, I've heard preachers use them and, and kind of guide them and use them in different ways. But secular humanism is something that we engage with, especially I engage with a lot as a Christian pastor. And so I have some difficulty here this morning uh, in addressing this. And I found that out last service as I dove into it again. And that is, do you ever have that professor who thought he was teaching so well and so simply that he was making no sense to you at all? Anybody had that guy or that teacher? Because they just were so, they got it. I've dealt with these issues for so long. I have a tendency to talk so fast and reference things. Um, So if you're like, What in the world is Greg talking about? There are lots and lots and lots of information out there on this 
um, religious perspective, and I've studied a lot. So if you have questions, I want to invite you guys, feel free afterwards, not during the sermon, but afterwards, come ask me or send me emails. I'll explain whatever it was that I was saying, or if you if you're a uh, kind of an atheist or secular humanist or even an agnostic who's like, uh, I've got questions for you. I absolutely encourage you. Please bring those up after service. Bring those up in emails. We would love to engage those. But what we've been doing in this series is asking that basic question, like how do all roads lead to heaven? And a lot of people say, yeah. And we said, really? In fact, last week what we saw is that's the Hindu position. And Hindus believe that all roads lead to heaven, that Islam doesn't think so, Christianity doesn't think so, and in fact, secular humanism really doesn't think so. In fact, while all these would claim some road goes to heaven, secular humanism is the one that claims no roads go to heaven. There is no heaven, there is no God, don't even worry about the question. And so as we dive into this, we're going to look at the various perspectives here again with our three questions. Now, wanting to remind you that what we've done is we're saying, if you really talk to those who are believers in their faith, if you really talk to people who promote their faith, what you'll discover is that they actually make a claims that they have a particular problem that they're solving. Christianity deals with the problem of sin, and Jesus Christ removes that sin. We have Islam that claims it's a problem of ignorance, and the Quran answers the problem of ignorance. We have a Hinduism that says you're stuck in a reincarnation cycle of suffering, and that moksha, or liberation, sets you free from that suffering. And so when we see that they're arguing different things, it's like a plane and a rocket and a boat. They are all designed for different purposes and they answer different questions. And today, like the car that answers the question, how to get along the ground quickly, it comes to the answer, hey, you drive yourself. And that's really what humanism is about. Get in, shut the door, it's you and your engine, and get moving across the landscape of ideas. And so as we examine humanism, we're going to ask our three questions again. Question one being, what's the problem? Question two being, what's the solution? And question three being, what's your proof that you offer for the evidence of the problem and the solution. And what we have said is, if one worldview, if one idea solves both the problems of life and death and can give adequate evidence that it has indeed solved the problem, then that's the one you should follow. That's the one you should go after. And we've looked through these other three religions. You can go back to the podcast and examine those if you're interested. We're not going to rehash all that today, but today we're going to look at secular humanism. And as we examine this, the problem that they offer is this. And the problem in secular humanism is to know how do you live a good life and a full life, a fulfilled life without, quote, God or, or supernatural events. See, secular humanism does not believe in the supernatural. They, they actually have come to the conclusion that if you look at science and you examine the world through scientific eyes, what you will discover is that there is no other realm. There is no God that's out there. You're not going to find him anywhere in the universe. You're not, you don't need him because you can't scientifically find him. If you were really to examine the world and do it with the best knowledge that we have, you would see there's no God. There's no supernatural. There's no soul. What you are is simply an accretion of evolution, but a beautiful one. You and I are actually the utmost, the, the ultimate creation that has come out of evolutionary processes, that you and I are the ultimate animal. That if, and now that we're aware and we see the world around us, we can understand it, and we have a responsibility then to one another and to this planet to do the best that we can to live a good life and to live a fulfilled life so that others can continue on to live a good and fulfilled life. Because you only go around once, 
And so you need to do your best you can. You only got one life to live. Live it to the fullest and live it to the best. And this is what their argument is. And so they say, then how in the world do you live well? Knowing there's no God to tell you how to live. It's not going to come off a mountain. It's not going to come out of a book. It's not going to come from some pastor on a stage. No, it's going to, it's going to come from, from you and, and the world of humans. How do we live? And so their answer is that this is how you do it. You find meaning in community. You find knowledge in science. You find ethics through experience and purpose by living a better world. And this is their solution. They honestly are trying to tell you, listen, meaning is found in your community. Guys, we know this, don't we? I mean, if you went to high school in America, you understand how important your community is in association to your meaning. Some of you grew up and your parents were listening to some weird music that you just were like, what is that music? I've never, I don't like their music. Maybe it was choir music, church music. Maybe it was a, a weird version of rock and roll that you didn't like and it wasn't grungy enough. Maybe it was grunge music and you don't think it was poppy enough. Whatever, our parents always listen to weird music. Isn't that true? And as you gather with friends at school, suddenly you're like, I like punk music. You liked punk rock or you liked country or you were a sports person or you didn't like music at all. And what you found is you gravitated to a group of people who are like you. They dressed like you. They thought like you. They accepted you. You joined in with them. You did what they did. They did what you did. They affirmed you. And in that, you had some meaning. Jocks, you got meaning because you all play sports together. I was part of the nerd crew, right? We had meaning because we were going to rule the world. And we do. But... <laughs> The, the point is that you found your meaning within your community group. And today, this is writ large. You find your meaning in your identity group, whether it's the identity in your sexuality, whether it's your identity in your skin color, your ethnicity, whether it's in your nationalism or whatever it is, depending on what brand you've pulled from this world for meaning, it's a community that gives you meaning is what they say. And if you can find a good community, then you will find meaning. The reason we as Christians, we gather together is we all have the same viewpoints and we believe the same things. And so we have meaning in our community. We can care about each other and help each other and, and hold each other up. And so they don't have a problem that we gather. They just think we're wrong. And so you'd find meaning in community. Second is you find knowledge in science. And what's interesting about this is science is considered the best way to know things. You don't need God telling you what the world is like. You know, to tell you that, look, up there are some angelic beings called stars. No, when science got involved, what we did is we zoomed out and we looked and what we found was those aren't angels. Those are big, giant gas balls. And they're shining brightly. You know, when we started looking at the world around us, we realized, nope, those aren't angels moving the trees. It's not God moving stuff. Nope, that's pressure systems moving wind around so that we understand how this works. When you look inside and you see how a baby forms, God's not knitting anybody together in the womb. No, it's, it's stem cells that are multiplying into the appropriate pluripotent stem cells that turn into these uh, various organs and produce this zygote that becomes a fetus, that becomes, you know, all that stuff. Science is the best observational power we have to understanding the world around us. You want proof? Go back to the 1500s and look at what they were using to drive around on. Go back to the 1500s at the scientific revolution and fast forward, we're flying into space, folks. You've got a wristwatch that Dick Tracy would have loved. And some of you guys are going, who's Dick Tracy? You guys, we have the things of science fiction from the 1940s and 50s going on right around us every single day. 
And as we begin to see, science has this amazing ability to understand the world, harness it for human power and prowess, then you got to see that that's the way to understand life. That's the best way to know things. You want to engage with how we should live sociologically and as a society? Go to science. You want to know what really is beautiful? We should talk to science. You want to really examine reality around you? Go to science. Because it's observational, it can be proven, and it's been the best way that we've ever had. And so if you don't know how to do science, you go, need to go get an education. So education is central to the worldview. That if you're going to grow in knowledge, you need to have a public education system. You need to be educated by the right people to get the right kind of education so that you can grow. That's why one of the first humanists, they actually have a manifesto. It's called the Humanist Manifesto. His name was John Dewey. If you know the Dewey Decimal System in the library, John Dewey was a humanist, an atheist humanist who set up the majority of our public school systems. Which is why most of us know humanism better than we know anything else. It's founded on a different franchise, if you would. Now, I'm not saying all public schools are humanists, and that's not what I'm saying, but Don Dewey, who was a very powerful, important person in the history of public schools, indeed was a signer of the Humanist Manifesto, the original. Most of the information I'm giving you guys comes from Humanist Manifesto number three. They're already on number three because it's a progressively learning group of people. And so they are very into knowledge and growth. Ethics comes, however, through experience. You need ethics because people, we only have one life. And if we only have one life and we have only this planet, we need to treat this planet and each other as best as we can. And so because you're the height of evolution, you're the highest of valuable animals because you're aware. And so we need to treat you with the highest value because of your awareness. I'm shooting down all kinds of arguments that are popping into my head right now. So what we need to realize is that therefore you need to treat each other with a great level of value and respect. And so ethics is not founded on some lawgiver coming down a mountain. It's not founded from some book that's going to come from a prophet. It's not founded from some guru sitting on, sitting on some, some peak somewhere. No, it is found from hardened experience. Whether that's scientific experience, done experiments and done throughout history, and so we've learned from history and we grow, or it's because you and I understand one basic truth. I don't want myself to be harmed and hurt by anybody else, and so I won't harm and hurt anybody else. So go do whatever you want as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. That's the basic ethical stance. As long as I don't harm you and you don't harm me, we're good. Go do whatever you want. What if I want to harm myself? That's up to you because you are over yourself. But the ultimate standard is as long as you don't, want to, as long as you don't hurt somebody else, I harm somebody else, it's okay. And this is the basic ethical position. And so from there, we can begin experiments. We can see what's really best for a society. And we can run scientific sociological tests. And we can look at these tests and realize, okay, this is how it should work. And so we will hear around our world right now, the most, va the most valid way to understand something is when a university comes out and says, we did this great study. And what we found out is this about humans. Let's make policy. And so you use the education system to bring it into the law to ensure that we live the best. This is the humanist concept. Now, in a secular manner, they're not going to appeal to a god. You must appeal only to that which is most general, and that is scientific knowledge. Now, as we continue forward, you begin to see that the solution also includes leaving a better world. Guys, this is only one world. And guess what? Eventually, if we can make it, we will all die by a supernova from the sun exploding. 
if we make it there. Right now, it looks like we're going to blow ourselves up, so let's denuclearize. Let's make sure we decarbonize. Let's make sure this place gets to the best possible world we can. Animals are dying. Let's save some animals. We don't want to see them die on our watch. We don't want to see more humans die than need to, but we don't want to overpopulate the planet either, so we need, some, we need to control that for the sake of the future. So when we think about how our ethics work, it's also about those of the future and the case of the planet, which is why space travel is so important because we need to get off this planet to repopulate and these other millions of billions of planets that are out there to ensure when the sun blows up, we can keep going. This isn't, this isn't, this is sane. This is very logical because there is no supernatural. This is it. This is all you've got. And so we need to treat this world rightly. And I agree with them. And we need to treat one another rightly. And when we do these four things, you will live a full, meaningful, good, and fulfilled life. And I'll tell you what, when you look at their solution and you look at their problem and when you examine it, I'm not surprised there are really good atheists in this world. Neither should you be. You shouldn't be shocked when you meet some very moral human beings who don't believe in God or an afterlife who value humans greatly, who do good things and do good ventures. And we should be excited. They're that close and yet they are so far. Because their solution elevates humanity to a powerful position. We are, in a very real way, the masters of the universe as far as we can tell right now. Until we find somebody else who's greater than us. And then it's all Independence Day and we're going to have a lot of fun. But the movie, Independence Day. So anyway... The solution then is, is very elegant and it has a lot in it. But the question is, what's the proof? How do we really understand that this is what it is? And, and here's the crux of the matter. You know what? Their, their solutions and their information is powerful and good, whether you're a theist or not. Whether you believe in the supernatural or not. Yeah, we should learn from science. Yes, we should learn from these things. Yes, we should have good ethics. We should care for one another. Absolutely. But the essential question is not whether you're a good person, not whether you live a fulfilled life. The essential question is what if you're wrong about the supernatural? Because what if at the end of your life, you don't just cease to exist, but you keep going? What if suddenly, instead of just nothing, you're standing before your creator and you're going, Ugh. that's the crux of the question. Because if God doesn't exist, there is no supernatural. This is a great solution. But if there is a supernatural, we're missing a key element. And so the essence of the conversation always circulates around the supernatural. It always circulates around the existence or non-existence of either God or the supernatural realm. And so they will lay out a couple ways of, of evidence. First of all, they'll say, look, science has shown there is no God. We've heard this, haven't you heard that out there? And we, so we, they pit faith and science against each other. As they say, because the faith is the supernatural realm, science shows there is no God because science is about this world and this realm. When you examine through science with observation and hypothesis and procedure and conclusion that's repeatable over time, you will come to the conclusion that all you've got are atoms and energy and quanta and chemical laws and physical laws that hold the universe together and that's all you have. Because science doesn't examine other realms. It doesn't go beyond what you can taste, see, sense, feel on all those five senses things. It is right there. 
And so they, they give this proof that basically science is the best way to know something that is real. And when you have that, then they say, all your other little logical proofs about God, all your little ontological and teleological and cosmological arguments about God, and you're going, what in the world are those? Look them up, they're fascinating. And you've probably heard them in a freshman philosophy class if you went to like RCC or something. But those philosophical arguments, they say, are useless because there's no scientific data to back them up. Because you need to have observational data. You need to have at least that with some rationality attached in order for it to really be true. Now, I got to be careful because the newest humanist manifesto allows for rationality, but they still say science is the best route. And they know that because if you just have science, you've you, you got a problem. But Again, I'm having to swat a lot of thoughts down in order to stay honest to the situation. I don't want to give you guys a false view and think that, hey, we knocked it down. That's not, that's not cool from a pastor who's trying to tell you truth. And so just so you know, there, it get, there's a lot of background conversation. Maybe I'll write some blogs on it. We'll try to tackle it that way. But science, at least, they say, is the best way forward. And you know, look, things like God, things like math, things like logic, can be shown to have come from our world. I'll give you an example. They will argue for math and logic in God in these manners. Um, how do you guys know what water is made of? Let's put you way back into your science class. It's called what? Yell it. H2O. It's two hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms smashed together. Now, if you zoomed in, you had one H2O. There is just a, they're just atoms moving around, made of energy, kind of doing their little thing, connected to another. And so... But what's weird is you put a bunch of the H2L, uh, H2L, um, H2O things together, components together. And what's weird is they start moving around each other in a liquid form. They start to slide around on top of each other. And what emerges as we go further out is something we call wetness. Now, wetness is not found in the hydrogen atom. It's not found in an oxygen atom. It's found in the liquid state as we observe it. And so wetness is what they call an emergent property. And so this emergent property appears as you put all these little molecules together and they're doing stuff. And so what's interesting is they say, now look, what is your brain made of? Well, you can't really say, oh, it's, it's made of cells, neurons that are all gathered together, that are firing together, they're doing all these chemical reactions that are having all of these different dopamines and all this stuff going, firing through your brain. And they say, what happens when all that complexity gets together through all the eons of evolution is that a self emerges. It's like wetness. You are like wetness. Logic is like wetness. And what happens is these little selves who are running around who have this emergent awareness of the world around us suddenly realize the world is a big, bad, scary place with lightning and fire and animals that want to kill you and eat you and the ground shakes and forces move and hurricanes hit and we don't know what to do with this stuff. There must be something controlling it. Therefore, we create a God. And so God becomes an emergent reality from our identity to, from our awareness to deal with our fears of the universe. What they say is we've come now to the place where we realize we can harness the power of science. We no longer need the idea of God because it has done its work to get us to where we're at. It's time to evolve past it. And so the picture is here. God is a, a creation of your mind. It's a creation of a society coping with a violent and dangerous world. And you can move on. 
In fact, they will go on then to say your concepts of God don't even function right. If you think about it, you have a God who is at best a loving God. Well, how does a loving God deal with a horrible, evil reality? I mean, go out into the world and really look at it for a minute. Right now, children are dying like crazy in the Congo of Ebola. How is that even fit with a God who's loving? Let alone all the violence that's happening from wild animals and forest fires and human killing and all of the tsunamis and the hurricanes and all the garbage that's happening all over the place. You really say there's a loving God behind the whole system? Your construct is wrong. It actually proves our point. It's a violent world. You created God in hopes that he could control the world because you're scared. And so they say, see, there is no supernatural world. There's no need for the supernatural world. And therefore, you have a way to live. Do your best to care for each other and the world. Grow in your knowledge so you have an examined life. And then move forward. Because you only got one to live. Pretty convincing arguments in our culture right now, I think. A lot of people look at it and go, well, it works. It seems to be right. I mean, yeah, I'm scared of the world too. Is that why I believe in God? I think that's why a lot of people believe in God. I don't think it's the right reason to believe in God. You see, there are problems with their evidences. There's problems with their proofs. And the problems reside in a very basic way. The philosophers who believe and don't, skeptical philosophers on both sides of the camp understand that science is only one way of knowing. It's not the best way of knowing In fact, science can only give you a possibility of knowledge. It can't even give you an exactitude of knowledge, unlike mathematics. Mathematics can give you a proof. One plus one equals two. When you ask science to give you proof, it'll only give you probability because it only works on evidence and repeatability and even repeatable problems. It's so funny. You get a high school science class, then you go to your bachelor's degree science class, and they're like, yeah, this is, you know, we're not as clear about this, but you said that's how it was. And you go to master's class, and they're like, yeah, we don't believe any of this stuff. We just simplify it, and then this is really the problems. Because scientists are constantly in war with each other about which hypothesis is actually the stronger one of the evidence that's laid out. And so science is a way of knowing, but if you want the concrete, knowledgeable way of knowing, all philosophers would argue it's about logic, folks. And here's the problem. If you want science to work, you need logic. Now, I'm going to ask you to do me an experiment. Right now, do your best to prove logic doesn't exist without using logic. And all philosophers point this out. They say logic is a basic You can't prove logic's existence or non-existence without using it. It's a presupposition. It's just part of the fact that you're alive. It's known. They call it innate knowledge. And so so if you have something that's beyond scientific evidence, you can't prove logic exists. You can't prove logic happens. You can't use a scientific experiment to to show the the law of logic in the world. It's all from rational thinking and, and putting pieces together. That's something that's beyond nature. That's supernatural. There's a whole division of philosophy out there arguing over mathematics. Like, how do we know it's real? And yet we're flying things around using mathematics all the time. We're sending people to space using math. We're going, yeah, is that real? I don't know if that's real. Because math isn't something that is part of the scientific exploration. It's part of a philosophical construct. 
And it's part of a reality that is beyond this earth. Now, add to that fact that this, science is weird in and of itself. Because what science tells us as you examine the world is all that all the world around you is a bunch of chemical reactions. You got that? You got chemical reactions happening, your brain's firing. And what we know from observation, they tell us, is that you evolve from random mutation and natural selection. Got it? Random mutation. From laws of physics that were randomly selected and managed to line up for us. The randomness or chaos theory rules the universe, is what they say. And so if you understand that all of this is random and what's just kind of seemingly orderly and your brain is but just these firings from this random universe and yet the only thing in the universe that makes science happen is your brain. Last time I checked, I don't trust random things. Do you? For good information. I mean, if you just randomly run out into the internet to find your answer, but you don't have a question, you're just like, I'm just going to open the first website that shows up. Nope, didn't answer my question. You don't use randomness. You use guided information. You, you, you have to know it's there. Randomness doesn't help you at all. And yet your brain is part of a random system that's telling you the world is not random. How can you trust your brain? It's the very fundamental problem in science. You need something outside of science to prove that science even works. Practicalities aside, why would we even start? So you need more beyond just science for knowledge. You need more beyond just these things. You need logic. You need beauty. You need all of these other things. In fact, philosophically, Christianity has proven the existence of God over and over and over again using logical means first and philosophy, then using evidential means in science. What's fascinating about science is it points to something weird. So you look up into the universe, you know what they find out? They find this background radiation and, and all these red shifts and all, everything's moving away and in these directions. And so as they calculate this information, it all comes down in one scientific model to where it's all been in this one little tiny crunch, this little tiny, what they call a singularity, all of mass and all of creation in one single tiny singularity. And then it, boom, it randomly explodes out into what we know as the universe today called the Big Bang. They don't like that name, but that's what it's called. <laughs> What they have found is they've examined closer and closer and closer in time to the beginning of that point is that the laws of physics and the laws of chemical and chemistry and all these pieces of nuclear physics, all this stuff is so precise so that we can live that if anything's just a hairbreadth off and less than a hairbreadth, I mean, we're talking in trillions and trillions and trillions of small degrees off, nothing exists. This is called the anthropic principle. And as you look at it, they go, we don't know what to do with this. And so what they do is they go, we're punting. You know what they punt to? It's called the multiverse. Anybody heard of the multiverse? Some pretty cool sci-fi coming out on the multiverse, I'll tell you right now. But the multiverse is, a, is not something science can find. It's something science, they say, points to. Well, time out. If science can't prove it, and science can't find it, we call that supernatural. And in and of itself, it ceases to be able to show that this world is all there is. They're actually claiming there's multitudes of worlds out there that all have their own precisions, all their own same things. So where did that come from? And on and on it goes. And so what we begin to find is that the very concept that there is no nature, that all we have is nature, there's no supernatural, begins to fall apart. Especially when you just look in your cell. I mean, look at your hand for one second. Just look at that thing. There are 
millions upon millions of cells in your hand and millions and millions of germs and bacteria growing on the top of your hand. Yeah. You want to shake? So you actually have more bacteria and stuff growing on you than you have cells in your body. You're like, gross, give me a bath. It's very helpful for your body. Don't, don't get too grossed out. But the reality is inside every one of those cells, regardless if it's yours or something else, is a little nucleus. In that nucleus is a thing called DNA. We all remember DNA, dionucleic acid. What's interesting about DNA is that it's an encrypted coding system using A, C, T, and G as we coded it. And it uses three steps and three partites and all this stuff. I get into it. It's crazy. This is a whole for a lecture. The bottom line is when Bill Gates looked at what they discovered in the DNA after he was taught about it, he said, this is the most sophisticated coding I've ever seen. We have yet to even come close to accomplishing this. There's so much information in DNA, let alone what they're discovering called the sugar code that's on the outside of your cells that are so complex. It's multitudes time more difficult than the DNA code, they are saying, where is this information coming from? Humanists have to punt to aliens because they need it to be in this world. But when science starts to point beyond the world and starts to point to intelligence beyond the world and starts to point to things beyond this world, what you end up with is a supernatural world. At that point, you begin to ask yourself, is this the only way to live life or is there something I need to be paying attention to that's beyond the world. And so it's in that case that you begin to see that the morals of life begin to fail. Because how do you live life morally if my life to live is my morals and your life to live is your morals? It's called relativism. And it, becomes, it starts to fall apart as people begin to pick who's true and who's not. When do I hurt somebody? When do you hurt me? And ultimately, nobody knows because you need a scientific measure to tell you. This is what they tell you. I've had a debate with people over the moral ethics. It was, uh, it's on YouTube. You can check it out. It was fun. Me and Stephen, our outreach director, had this conversation with them. And basically, they came down to this. They said, the way you know morals and ethics is through science. You do the studies, you come to the conclusion, and then that's how we should live. And that's why you're hearing from society, you need to do these certain things for scientific knowledge, and now we know how to live. When we have that kind of a basis, what you will discover is that you don't have enough knowledge to dive in. And if you don't have enough knowledge to dive in, you need to trust the scientist. Or you trust your professor who passed on the knowledge of scientists or the media who passes on the knowledge to you. And you need to trust your politician that he knows the science well enough to implement the laws that we should live by. And therefore, that's the, those are the four priests of humanism. You either need to be indoctrinated in the science to know, be a professor who is in the know to know, or a media person who's been told enough to let you know, or the politician who should know enough to tell you what you should know. And there's a gap of faith in every single one of those. This is a religion. This is not just a philosophy. They have their preachers. They have their codes. They have their books. And so don't forget that this is just as much a faith system as anything else using just as much magic as anybody else, as they would say. And finally, you can't be fulfilled because you don't have free will. You are a determined set of chemicals and actions that move about according to laws of physics and laws of nature, and you cannot fulfill yourself. If you're talented, praise nature. You're talented. If you have no talents or skills, tough luck. Because you have no will to change those things. You are what you are, deal with it, because then you'll die and it'll be over. So make the most that you can with what you've been given. The cards have been dealt. 
And so the reality to me is that secular humanism cannot give us the real good life or truly fulfilled. They don't have a definition for truly good. They don't have a definition for really fulfilled. But why does it work so well, people wonder. And the basic answer I have, it came from last summer when I took my family, or I got a chance to go with my family out to, uh, out to Yellowstone. We were staying in Grand Teton, you know, and it was kind of one of those interesting moments. We pulled in, there was this mama bear kind of outside of the campground. And of course, as a dad who owns four snacks called children, I, I was a little nervous about what that meant. And so we were talking and my father-in-law found out, oh, he talked to the ranger and the ranger's like, it's okay. We haven't had a bear attack in the camps for decades. In the camps, outside of the camps, it's a different problem. No, no bear attacks in the camps for decades. And so we're like, okay, I guess that's good. You know, try to sleep the first night and you're still thinking something's gonna kill me, something's gonna kill me. And um, so during the day, you're opening up all your Tupperware, getting all your food out, you're cooking, you're cleaning, and then you put it away and you know what you do, right? You put it in a bear box. Shove the bear box, close it. Every time you get something out, you can do it, clean it, put it back in the bear box. By about the fifth time, my son Nate's like, dad, why do we have to keep putting this back in the bear box? They said there's no animals that attack around here. It's been decades. Like, that's a great question. And we could have probably left the food out. We could have probably left things dirty. And yeah, probably bears wouldn't have attacked us because the rangers would have kept them away. But if everybody started doing that, and kept doing that, the bear attacks would begin again, guaranteed. And what has happened is secular humanism has grown up in a world where we were putting things in the bear box called Christianity. Over and over and over again, we take the moral evils of humanity, explain it and put a God and make sure that his morality and his truths were being taught and understood and there was grace and transformation, self-sacrifice and a moral ethical code that produced the ability to know the world and understand things and graciously use them for the benefit of other people. And as we did this, I'm not saying it was perfect. They've had it, we've had our flaws. Trust me, I'm not a, a naive to that. But as we kept putting it in the bear box, eventually barbarians stopped killing children for the sake of gain and to please their pagan gods. Eventually, Eventually, we started creating orphanages. Eventually, we started educating children and everybody. And eventually, all these things began to be accrete into this beautiful place that we know as today called Western culture. And we kept putting it in and putting it in and putting it in. And now that we have this, we go, well, there aren't any barbarians killing people. And there's none of this ignorance floating around. We don't need the bear box anymore. And about in the 1800s, we stopped putting things really in the bear box culturally. And what do you see today except a return to tribalism? Be it tribalism over your skin color, tribalism over your, over your uh, government grouping that you group into. We've returned to barbarian tribalism. We kill our children for the sake of gain and to appease the greater gods. We turn around and we do atrocious things in the argument of taking and, ma- and killing our old because, well, they, they don't really want to live right now anyway. They're diseased. These are not new concepts. They are as old as tribes are in the Northern European context. Everything that once was put in the bear box has now been let out. And while secular humanism wants to claim it can contain it, it will not, because it has no true moral direction to go. But Christianity does. And it does indeed provide a full and truly good life. It defines it through the word of God. It gives us information to know. In fact, what we see is we don't deny science. You can be confident in learning. Scriptures actually tell us the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, he pours out speech. And night to night, he reveals knowledge. That means there's a world out there to explore from an orderly God. Why do we not find chaos and randomness except the creator God is ordered? Why do you find information except that the creator God is intelligent? 
Why do you find an ecosystem that needs all the other creatures in order to really succeed? Because God has designed this place and he's put us as the caretakers. Yes, let's care for this earth. Yes, let's care for one another because you're made in his image. And what we discover instead is that when we care for one another in the image of God, and we meditate on the truths that come from that. We wind up with the good life. As it says, you blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Why? Well, it is. And what happens? On his law, he meditates day and night, and he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. It produces the good and fulfilled life. It enables you to step out and engage with people because they are of equal worth which means they're worthy to be paid rightly. It means they are worthy to be cared for. It means that they are worthy to have an existence on this planet, no matter whether they're sick, whether they have genetic issues or not, they have an opportunity and ought to have every option to live in this world. That isn't proven through science. It's given to us by God. Science says naturally humans are tribal. Science says naturally we are animals. Naturally, we should devolve into our animalistic tendencies to kill one another for the sake of survival. Christianity says, no, you should die for one another for the sake of their survival. The complete opposite. For the sake of them making it into eternity, we should be willing to lay our lives down because we have been secured through the grace of Jesus Christ so that others might have the same option. There is no greater ethic than to love someone, not with feelings and emotions of chemical reactions in our brains to make me pitter-patter. <laughs> no, to sacrificially lay my life down for my friends, as Jesus says. That is the ultimate ethic. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the ethic that changes the world. That was the ethic that began to move and transform humanity. And we have this good life by the Spirit and in Jesus. You see, what happens is the problem is that we are distant from God, from the creator who gave us how to live. And because we're distant, we got to figure out our own way. I think that's why secular humanism works because we're naturally separated from God. They figured out a way to live where they exalt the image of God as God. But what we need to do is step one further journey, one step further to see that God himself is present and he is able to be accessed as Jesus removes that sin, that moral evil and all that garbage that we produce so that we can have access to the supernatural, reconnect back with God, and then the Spirit of God moves us and motivates us. First, Jesus examples that life, as I just talked about. He says, hey, what sh-, he preaches, you know, what should, don't be anxious about anything. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The nations seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first God's kingdom, his rule, his presence in your life, guiding you into his way, and his righteousness, and all those things will be added to you. Seek the greater life, not just the survival life. Seek beyond that, knowing God will provide you what you need as you care for others, as you sacrifice on behalf of them, as you love on other people. In fact, what happens is the spirit of God takes residence in your soul and gives you the best life. Who doesn't want more love? Who doesn't want to be joyful? I mean, this culture is depressed. We've shown it scientifically. There's plenty of war, anger, Disgust at one another. We need peace. Who doesn't want patience where I can handle a little bit more traffic and not want to chop someone's head off, right? 
Don't we want to be more kind? Don't we want more goodness in this world? Aren't we seeking more faithfulness and stop seeing people break off relationships and destroy things and lie to one another and cause business issues because we're not faithful? Don't we want to see more gentleness instead of the blunt brutality of the trolls on all the various social media? Don't we need a little bit more self-control? So we can say no to ourselves and stop throwing ourselves in. See, here's the problem. It says that there is no law against these things. Without the spirit of God, you will either give yourself into the bondage of your own DNA and your own proclivities, or you will find yourself under the bondage of those who will tell you how to live. It's called tyranny. Those are your only options without God. Because when God moves in and he gives you the ability to live the life that we ought to live, it transforms things. And that can only happen because you have had a relationship with God. You see, he exists. There's plenty of evidence. And I can't go over all of it. Again, like I said, that's like a guy on, I love this stuff. This is like my drug. I'm like, yes, stand up here for four hours and talk about it. And you guys go to sleep. But you know, here, we got to understand, we can know the supernatural exists. Paul just put it this way. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's so mean. No, 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 you gotta understand. They should know, they should accept it, but they've denied it because they wanna keep their sin. They wanna do the things they wanna do. They wanna follow their proclivities and not be judged for it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. You can look, you can find it in science. You can find it in philosophy. You can find it in art. You can find it in beauty. You can find it in all these locations of the human experience. God shows up. And so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what happens is because we cannot handle that God might judge us, because we cannot handle that maybe there is one who is over me and it's so fearful and so frightening because he is more frightening than any hurricane guaranteed. He's more frightening than any earthquake. He who has the power to look at your soul, to know you and your nakedness, and every aspect of your depravity, and you can't escape his eye, as Camus put it. Now you know the need to be free. Either that God is angry and wants to crush you, where he has done a great work to love you. And I want to invite you to consider that Jesus Christ has come to set you free. He's come as that God into earth to let you out. Not because he hates you to crush you, but because he has loved you to bear your sin. So the problem is our sin. The problem is that's what makes us not want to look to heaven and just stare at earth. And while I could go through all the arguments and all that stuff, I just want to stop there for a minute. Let you consider that, this one thought. If there is a God and he created all of these laws of the universe, the law of gravity, the law of entropy, the atomic laws, all these different things that we know about. And if you can split one atom breaking that law and it blows up a city. If you can jump off a roof and it'll break you. If you break the physical laws, they break you. How serious is God to warn us against his moral laws, which are just as powerful, if not more? And if we've broken those moral laws, 
What's the consequence that's coming? God knew them perfectly well. And so he sent his son to bear that punishment so that you wouldn't have to, to set you free, to let you have a life, the good life. You simply receive it. I want to give you that opportunity to do that. So would you bow your heads with me? Maybe today is that chance for you. And right now where you're at, I just want to ask you to make a decision to begin that journey in following after him. And you just simply start with this prayer. Say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know that I have a moral failings in my life. And I know that they can break me through their reality. And I ask that you'd forgive me. I trust that Jesus bore those sins away, that he rose from the dead to give me life. And I ask that you'd come into my life. Let me know you. Let me experience you. Help me to walk with you. And I ask that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen.